Well, Father, I do thank you for these brothers here, and it was just great to have this wonderful feast. Uh, and as we kind of digest the food and digest some of the messages that we heard, as we think about evangelism, I pray that our hearts will be, be encouraged. Just pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, my, my first question is, um, kind of from the beginning of your ministry until now, how have you just seen uh, evangelism change in your, your church? And you kind of brought up an interesting point. <coughs> yeah, for, for our church, you know, as I think one of the benefits of church planting um, is that there's a renewed sense of urgency. You know, the people who are planting recognize it's evangelize or die. It's, uh-huh. it's do or die. So, you know, for us, we had a, a small team of people, um, a number of families, a couple single folks, and we spent a lot of time before we ever started as a church just talking about what is the church, what's the mission of the church, what is the gospel, um, and how do we go about sharing the gospel. So we talked about that quite a bit. So when we all were kind of boots on the ground, um, we intentionally structured a lot of things around reaching out to people because that's why we had moved to Lawrence. So there was this, it was a blessing to have that very clear sense of urgency for our church. Fast forward eight years, the church has grown. We've bought a building. We're no longer, you know, the homeless, you know, kids sleeping on people's couches. We have like our own place. And with that comes different programs and different things. And somebody's got to mow the lawn and there's all these other logistical things. So I think there, there can be a danger in the sense of urgency shifting from reaching out to people to maintaining and preserving what you do have. And not all of that's bad. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's a lot of discipleship that happens in the context of developing leaders for your ministry, you know, different stuff like that. So um, like we're struggling. I don't Sorry. know if that's you or me. I think that might be me. Okay. But yeah, I, I, I think we have seen some of that shift. But at the same time, um, part of the benefit of our church growing is there's maturing believers and a mature disciple is going to be making disciples. Somebody who understands and loves the gospel is going to share that. So I don't see the evangelism and then the internal edifying work you do in the church as being at odds with each other. They should reinforce each other. The evangelism brings in new disciples, and the discipleship equips and trains people to do that evangelism. So what we've discovered is that whereas it used to be a a small team of like special forces where everybody kind of does everything, We've grown now, and there's different people in the body who have different gifts, and there's some people who are great at inviting and welcoming and hospitality. There's others that are really good at answering objections to the faith, and so it's almost a, there's a little more specialization where um, different people in the church fulfill different roles, and together as a church, we evangelize better than any one individual evangelizes. So it's become a, it's still a group project, but the group is more diverse, and there's more things happening, so. Okay. Uh, How about you, Brett? Different scenario because uh, I'm, I came to Summit Woods 12 years ago. The church had already existed for probably, what, 11 years, 12 years uh, prior to my getting there. And so there was already a culture there. But I wouldn't say that there was a shared definition of evangelism. That's way harder, by the way. Right. So yeah. you got to set what yeah. evangelism means. I'm going to come into an environment where there's competing definitions of what is evangelism. Uh, some, some were good. Uh, some were good but poorly executed or I, I would say this. We had some some folks going out and doing evangelistic ministries. It's more programmatic. But it almost would come back and give the sense of if you're not doing our program, almost siloed. If you're not on our program, then you probably don't love the lost. 
So here's the Saturday morning crew that's going out into the parks and they're, they're engaging people with the gospel, just trying to get people to, to hear the gospel. And they're really very adamant uh, that this is, this is evangelism. And we have a Monday night group who's going out and visiting the visitors to our church. And, and they're very adamant everybody ought to jump on that one. And we've got people in Child Evangelism Fellowship, or we've got somebody in another one, and they're all kind of competing. Or we even had some uh, global work, I think, that was going on that when you evaluated it, it really was not what, what we would say is true evangelism. It's more humanitarian kind of work, but it was pitched as if it was evangelism. So competing ideas, no sense that we were one body, uh, and, and that has changed. So now, now it is more relational. Uh, people are seeing that I need to be evangelizing my neighbors, my family, etc. And, uh, and we don't have the competing siloed groups. Uh, and that, that can have an ill effect too because we, we probably need to be more intentional in evangelism in some other areas. We just don't need to make everybody feel as if, feel guilty because they're not doing the one program. Or the one way. We have some gifted people who could go out there and, and engage people uh, more directly. I'll, I'll tell you one of the, the biggest, most robust areas of evangelism we've seen has been in our counseling ministry. Hmm. Wouldn't you agree? Mark, who is the elder who heads up? Uh, yeah. I knew I was not going to go to bed tonight. If I didn't bring that up, he was going to be on me about that. <laughs> but it really has we have a number of hooks in the water where people can get connected to our church, like a mom's ministry, where people in our church are inviting other mothers with young kids, and they, they start to get exposed to people in our church. And then we find out, oh, your marriage is crumbling. Would you want to sit down with one of the you know, elders or one of the, the counselors in our church and, and talk about what's going on in your marriage, which they come in, can you patch and fix my marriage? And Mark shifts to, okay, do you know Christ? And if you're going to have counseling from us, you have to come to our church because we believe that the community of the church is a part of your sanctification, which exposes them to the rest of the body, which has an evangelistic impact as well. So we worked hard at trying to train the whole membership in how to disciple each other in intensive ways. And in our counseling training... We talk about, yes, you're going to do investigation, you're going to hear and listen to someone's issues, but the second piece as you're listening is kind of a redemptive phase. Do you, where are they in Christ? Because we can't move into applying the Bible if they're not Christians. We have to stay on, okay, what, what is the gospel and do you know the gospel? So that has been very fruitful. That's a big shift in our church because we had counseling when I came. But it was very secular-oriented, and it was the elders of the church could not know who was being counseled because of confidentiality issues. It was just very secular-oriented. And it was not confronting sin. We weren't seeing life trans transformation. Uh, it was kind of putting Band-Aids on problems and coping strategies, and that it was just very secular in nature. As we made that shift, I would say that has been a significant change in evangelism. But it's more to our people. We, I mean, we literally have in, invested time to train everyone in our church in intensive kinds of approach to counseling. So we understand the church culture is we're discipling each other. And 
And so we want to invite you into that. So if you've got issues going on in your life, well, the Bible has answers to that. So that's been a significant shift, uh, I think, a more robust and a more shared understanding of what evangelism is uh, has been helpful. I think from when I started in ministry, that was back in the late 1980s. You were a boy preacher. I was, uh, you know, 30 then. (laughs) No, I I was 12. No, I I started early. I was 18 when I started in ministry. it's very programmatic then, too. You memorize an outline, you know, and you go out with someone and try to get into a cold turkey conversation and present the outline to someone. So there were good things about that because I had to learn how to get over fear and establish conversations with people. So there were good things. I never saw any evangelistic fruit from that uh, other than I learned how to navigate some hard conversations and what verses do I go to to share I don't see that as much today, that kind of approach to evangelism training, uh, and I don't see it emphasized among like-minded churches like that anymore. The evangelism explosion, D. James Kennedy and Southern Baptists hijacked that and made their own thing out of it that I was a part of. Um, But at the same, there were good things about that too because there were discipling opportunities to take some out and train them in evangelism, but um, it has shifted over the years. So what role does your Sunday morning service kind of play in evangelism? You kind of mentioned that you make the counselees come on Sunday morning. Yeah, usually if if there's someone getting counseling from us, part of their homework is what, what did you hear on Sunday? And what impact should that be having in your life? Because they're not really thinking about the Bible as a whole or what's being said on Sunday. They, they just want this sore thumb that they came in with to be mm-hmm. fixed. But the Lord has a lot of other things that need to be dealt with so that that sore thumb can be actually fixed. Mm-hmm. Uh, honestly, preaching the Bible has been one of the most evangelistic things that we've done. Uh, I remember, you know, preaching Obadiah and Really? Someone's going to get saved in Obadiah? Yeah. Yes. I remember uh, one. she was a member of our church. <coughs> and she came with her husband and she said, I've been living a lie. I'm under the wrath of God and I know it because I've been intentionally living a lie. And I'm hearing you preach and I'm, I'm hearing I'm under the judgment of God for this lie that I have been living. Uh, all the, and she could articulate how she was intentionally just deceiving herself as, and comes to faith through, through that. I, I think the constant barrage of understanding God's truth, we, there's no way we can apply the Bible. If there's 400 people sitting out there, there's 400 different ways it could be applied to someone's life. So we're just preaching the word and letting the spirit bombard their life week after week after week. And I find that people that are coming now, coming out of seeker churches that emphasized being relevant, people are finding them to be irrelevant Mm. because it's not substantive. Now the seeker attractive movement is designed for online propagation. And so there's no real community. What's happening in the pulpit or on the platform is for someone else. It's not us as a people and and i think we're seeing people come and this is intriguing to them 
no one's going to go online and watch our live stream and say, you're all about the product there, <laughs> right? <laughs> we, we have not put that kind of money into it, uh, nor could you replicate what happens on the Lord's Day through an online venue. And I don't know what you guys are seeing. I hear it in other churches, but we're having a lot of new faces coming in. Some of them churched and some of them not, but a lot of new faces and a renewed kind of eagerness to say, I am really intrigued with what I'm hearing in the Bible. It's not uncommon for us to hear people say, I've, I've heard more Bible in one sermon than I've heard at my church in years. And uh, I don't think that's unique to us. I just think we're doing what you're doing, exposing the scripture, emphasizing the word, um, but that's a common occurrence. Now, there's things we, we could do better all the time. I know that, and we're trying to, but um, the gathering of the church in and of itself is a profound evangelistic tool. I agree with everything Brett said. Yes. Um, but you did I open up your Bible. Yes, so 1 Corinthians 11, this indicates that the things we do, like communion, and I think baptism falls into this category too, are symbols of the gospel. So every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, Paul says, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there's even parts of our liturgy, if you want to use that word, uh, though most of us would probably be more informal with our order of service, but there's even parts of our worship on a regular basis that are opportunities to lift up this message of the gospel, which edifies and encourages believers, but also um, provides an invitation for unbelievers. And we always give sort of the surgeon general warning, you know, before the Lord's Supper. Like, if you're not a believer, if you're under church discipline, this is not for you. Um, but here's what this means. And we want you to observe this and consider. Um, I think that the worship in our church is evangelistic in the sense that it's proclaiming the big God, um, his holiness, his glory, his judgment, his grace. And I think when people, uh, what people observe when they come, at least for in our church, they've observed um, that there's a, a joy present in the people. There's genuine love for each other. There's fellowship. People stay for an hour, hour and a half afterwards, you know, after church. And people realize, I'm missing out on something here. You guys have something. I think that's a, attractional in the right sense. Um, but I also think the way we preach, if, if we're preaching biblically, we're always pointing towards Christ. We're showing our need for Christ. We're preaching a big view of God, the true nature of man, all those things you talked about. But I think that does something else. Uh, it, what's evangelistic, uh, what can be evangelistic about preaching is the people listening to us preach who are already Christians should be learning how to evangelize as we teach the Bible. Because a lot of people say, I want to share the gospel, but I don't know how to get onto that topic. And I think a skillful preacher is going to be showing people there's a million on-roads and a million off-ramps, and here's all these different ways that we can go from point A to point B that's faithful to text, showing this all brings us back to who God is, his plan to glorify himself by redeeming people, our need, and, and how God provides that through Christ. So I think so much of hermeneutics or evangelism even can be caught, even if it's not taught, that if we faithfully preach the gospel, not in a simplistic, tack it on the end of a sermon way, but in a biblically faithful way, our people should learn that they can talk about Christ from any starting point as well. So I think that can be caught as well. Um, but I know in, in our church, I've heard a number of occasions where after a church service, people in our congregation have met a visitor, 
discern that they're maybe an unbeliever, not sure where they're at. And I've walked by people sharing the gospel in the aisle in our sanctuary. So people are coming to church. We have several people that are gifted that way. And they're on a mission. They're headhunting. Hmm, who's new here today? I wonder if they're a Christian. I hope I want to talk to them. So there's people looking for, for those. That's not just our job as the pastor. You know, well, we pay you to preach and to share the gospel, right? That's your job. No, that's it's something the church does together. And oftentimes, we'll have somebody that's very gifted with hospitality meet someone, and they go, oh, that's your background. That's what you do for a living. I've got to introduce you to so-and-so. And they're playing matchmaker, hooking them up with somebody else that's going to have a great inroad to share Christ. Oh, you're coming, you're struggling with this right now. There's someone in our church who came through that exact experience. And so there's a lot of that sort of informal evangelism. It's not from the pulpit even. The, the church body can do it even at church. And even something we were talking about earlier among the three of us, there's been a shift in the past. You know, we used to emphasize, can you share the gospel in a minute or less or can you share it in 10 minutes? And I think there's been a shift to, to be a little bit more patient with people to grasp the truth, let's, let's study the Bible together. Like uh, David Helm's little book, One-to-One Bible Reading, of just the idea of let's sit down and read the Bible together and patiently unpack this. It's not going to be done in f- one minute or five minutes because you don't, you don't know their vision of God. So having people just patiently, that's been a change, I think, in the evangelistic culture or approaches is to be more patient. I think you were mentioning some of that too. Yeah, I think um, I've noticed that the objections to the gospel are different now than they used to be. Uh, How do we know the Bible is true? How do we know the Bible is the word of God? Uh, How do we know that God exists? How do we know that Jesus rose again from the dead? I think that was kind of like the school of thought I was raised on. Uh, Now I think the primary emphasis is how do we know that God is good? You know, how could a good God allow evil to exist? Um, you know, what about homosexuality? You know, how could God oppose that? And so a lot of it is more defending the morality of the Bible. And you, you had an interesting story about that. Yeah, I don't remember what story you're talking about. <laughs> Which one? Uh, your son talking to his oh, yeah. My son, the first few years we were in Lawrence, my son was going to the public grade school down the street. And he was talking to a kid in his class. This is second grade, first or second grade. And um, asked him if he went to church. And my son was part of our church planting team. So at seven or whatever, he's like, yeah, we're supposed to invite people to church. And his friend goes, oh, no, we don't go to church. We don't believe, I don't believe in God. I don't believe God is real. And my son was confused. He's like, why don't you think God is real? He said, well, my dad said that he killed a bunch of people. So we don't believe in him. My son goes, so... If he's not real, how could he kill a bunch of people? You know, he was curious about this. He's <laughs> asking questions. But what, what struck me was I realized, I told my wife later that evening when we had talked about this story at dinner and said, some of these people in Lawrence, we actually have a lot in common with them. They're intentionally discipling their children. They're passing on their, their convictions to their kids. And, you know, a small child couldn't articulate that very well. But the point was that was different than some of the people in Johnson County who never would talk about things that matter with their children because... It's, it's just a different, different lifestyle. It's like some of these people are, a, a, have principled reasons for rejecting the gospel. It's not just a sort of spiritual apathy. It's a spiritual resistance. So I, we've seen more of that. I, I wouldn't disagree with what you're saying there. I, I think we still engage in some of those conversations on the reliability of the scripture 
some of that's there. Um, the apologetics method of winning the debate is not the emphasis. You know, we're not trying to win the debate. Uh, we're not trying to just disprove evolution, and therefore now you need to become a Christian. It's, uh, it's far more personal than that now. Um, it's far more relational, uh, I think. And it, and it maybe, maybe we're saying it's more ethics-focused. And that might be an area that we need to develop our folks in is to think through biblical ethics a little more carefully and clearly because that may be coming to play in conversations more. For instance, how somebody tells you, I, I can't believe in a God homosexuality. Homosexuality is wrong. In love is love, why would God tell those people that they cannot marry Yeah, he's saying, how would you respond to someone who would say, how can you believe in a God who would condemn people for their lifestyle? Isn't love, love, it's unjust, you know, what you're saying. Um, I think I would just, first of all, be very interested to, to know, wow, I, you have a very strong sense of what's right and what's wrong, and you have a desire for justice. Where does that come from? Like, where, where do you get that? Because I also believe that there is a right and wrong, and there is such a thing as, as justice, and there's certain things that just shouldn't be. So who gets to decide that? You know, wh where do we get that from? And um, I, I would use that not to try to have a gotcha moment with them, to prove them wrong, but basically to say there's something in your heart that's a little bit right. You know deep down inside there, there is such a thing as right and wrong. Let's be honest here. We're not moral relativists. Nobody is. No one wants to live in a world where moral relativism is, is the rule. So I, I understand that you are probably influenced by your experiences and by our culture and by consensus. Um, I also believe in right and wrong, and here's where I think it comes from. I just want to present the biblical story to them um, because I don't think I have to persuade them or change their mind as much as I want to present something that's actually coherent because their worldview is not coherent. It's not consistent. Ours is, and so I want to expose them to that because I actually believe that they have God's law written on their heart deep down inside. They have a conscience. They already know that there's a God. They're suppressing the knowledge of the truth, but this desire for fairness and justice is a little bit of that bubbling up to the surface. I just want to point out, I think I know where that comes from. You're made in the image of God, and you know that there must be a right and wrong, and there are things that are just and unjust. I believe that God is his own standard. He's the source and so rather than hold God accountable to some standard we make, it, it's the other way around and just present my understanding of what the Bible says and let that lay on their conscience. And if I don't change their mind, I think what I mentioned when we were talking, um, a, a book I read a number of years ago by Os Guinness called Fool's Talk and he pointed out how, kind of like you're saying, Brett, you don't have to change somebody's mind in 15 seconds. Everybody's somewhere on this spectrum, like you said, from A to Z in the, the other book you were mentioning. Some people are distracted, apathetic. They don't care. They're not interested in converting. Other people are on the edge of crisis, and they're saying, what must I do to be saved, right? And we want to talk to those people. Well, all we have to do is move them just a little bit further along. Some are watering. You know, some are planting. Some are watering. God's going to give the harvest. And Guinness used the illustration of putting a pebble in their shoe. They may walk away. They may not agree with you. So as I present what I understand, the true definition of justice and morality, the source of it being God himself, and then it's revealed in his word, and there's justice provided for and mercy provided for in Christ, and you present that to them. 
they may not agree with that right away, but I know they have a conscience. They're going to have to go to bed later that night and, and deal with their own guilt. Um, and I'm trusting that that pebble that's been put in their shoe, at some point they're going to have to sit down and deal with that and take that out. And so I'm just going to trust that the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to convict the conscience and to bring about conversion. So if I can, I think it's evangelizing to share the truth. Like you said, it's not the result of it. It's the process of sharing the message. So I, I would just try to, try to use that little thing, say, oh, we actually have something in common. We're on the same side. We're not moral relativists. But here's where I get that from. Just to camp on that, too. Usually when someone presents that kind of idea that, uh, you know, love is love, how could, how could God be opposed to that? That usually doesn't come from the fact that they have been studying ethics. That doesn't normally come from the fact that they, they have been thinking through all the options and found that one to be the most logical. There's something personal that led them to make that declarative statement because that fits where they are. So I want to maybe peel back. Okay, you said that. Get to know the person and find out what's driving that. That might drive where you go in the scripture next to address an issue that might not be the love is love question or homosexuality might not be the issue in the topic that needs to be addressed. Uh, it might be something far more personal. And, and I think finding out what that is is crucial too in, in just trying to get down to how to share the gospel with them. Maybe you can take um, a moment to share perhaps some mistakes that you've made in evangelism. I'm not going to do that again, moments in evangelism. Or maybe you've kind of, yeah, I don't know what I was thinking back then, moments of evangelism. So, Brett, I know you have a lot of these, so you, no, just kidding. <laughs> I really don't know where to begin with that. <coughs> uh, I've I've been the the hardcore. I, I remember in college, we were going to evangelize everybody on the college campus where I was, and we were going to do it systematically, door to door in the dorms. And I can remember just going door to door, everything I could to get into a gospel conversation and and railing on people. It was unkind. It was ungracious. Uh, it wasn't effective. It didn't leave a taste of Christ in their in their mouth. Uh, they resented me. They resented the church. Um, I've gone from that to swinging the other way, almost to a hyper Calvinist approach, where you know I'm just going to do my thing. If the Lord wants them saved, he'll he'll move on them. Uh, that's that's not fruitful either, uh, nor faithful to to God. Um, I think there's been, there's just so many, many mistakes of, of trying to, I'm going to get through my outline, I'm going to get you just to listen to what I have to say, I'm not really engaging you, I'm getting my content out, and um, I'd, I'd just like to be a lot more personal, a lot more patient, I'm not in a rush. I don't feel like this has to be. I, I understand when the fire's on how you know the house is on fire. You're, you you want to be urgent, but I, I I get that that element of it. But I want to engage people a lot more authentically. Yeah, I've probably made all the mistakes. I know there's been times where I didn't 
say anything, and I wish I would have. Times where I wasn't prepared, I wasn't, I didn't have my radar on. I'm at Home Depot trying to figure out which PVC fitting is the right one, and I'm not in that mindset of, here's an opportunity to share Christ. And then you realize 10 minutes later, like, oh, this would have been the perfect thing to say, but I wasn't, I wasn't ready. I wasn't on. I wasn't looking for that. So I think that's just a matter of personal preparedness that I fail at that often. And I've made the opposite mistake of seeing a situation and going for the jugular and saying too much. And I, I remember one time I was in an airplane with my brother. He was having a great conversation with somebody sitting next to us, and I totally hijacked it. I thought I saw the opening and went for it and just kind of messed the whole thing up. Um, so there's been times where I've said too much and not been patient enough. Um, I think another mistake I've made is there's been times where I've shared the gospel in, in too safe of a way, in the sense of because a lot of people still like to think of us as a pluralistic society, it's kind of safe to share, well, here's what works for me. You know, here's what I believe, and I've experienced all this benefit. And there's, there's a sense in sharing our testimony that we say, wow, you know, the Lord is good. I've tasted and I've seen and I'm telling others of his excellent greatness how I've experienced that, and that's good, but then I've failed to take the next step, which is to say, this isn't just for me and my family. This has bearing on you and your life, and crossing that threshold to actually call for a response, um, I think is the missing piece sometimes in our evangelism, because people find out what I do for a living. I don't know for you guys, that's one of the easiest ways for me to get into a gospel conversation. So what do you do? You're a pastor. Oh, then it's awkward, first of all, but you may as well use that awkward moment and say, yeah, every week I get to talk about this message and people in our church, here's what we believe. And you get right into it. What do you believe? You know, So that's a great opportunity, but sometimes it's easy just to share that in a safe way and not actually bring it to bear on them and ask them, have you ever considered that? What do you believe? Um, do you feel that sense of guilt for your sin? Do you believe in sin? You know, Crossing over that threshold is different because people are like, oh, that's nice. Mm -hmm. They can smile and nod as we talk about ourselves, even if we're talking about the gospel. But you cross that line. I, I know there's times where I've, I've failed to do that. I think a lot of these men in the room can, you know, once you're in the gospel conversation, you know what to do. Probably the most difficult part of evangelism, in my experience, is how do you get into that gospel conversation? How do you transition to it? Do you have any maybe go-to questions or strategies that you use to try to bring it in? I'm a one-trick pony, so I just ask people, how was your weekend? Or what are you planning to do this weekend? Really easy. And then they'll usually say, how was your weekend? Or you have any plans this weekend? Yeah, I'm going to church. Or we had a great you know, time of worship with our church family on Sunday. And I'm, I'm there, and I'm able to talk about it. So that's kind of my... My one trick. <laughs> I'm a pastor. I mean that that comes up regularly. I love to I love to do that on the golf course because I want to hijack the conversation on at least the first three holes, so we're we finally get four or five in, and they're like, "So what do you do?" And I, I've kind of let them you know curse a lot and and curse God's name a lot, and then then drop the bomb. Yeah, I teach the Bible on Sundays. I'm a pastor. Wow, well, <laughs> awkward. Uh, yeah, please forgive me for saying that. And, and yeah, it's, it's, it's really not me you need to ask forgiveness from, you know. Uh, and and I, I will say that kind of in a, in a way that is, you know, lighthearted. 
But I, I do want to turn that to, yeah, well, tell me, where, what do you believe about God? You know, have you been involved in the church? What's your background on that? I, I don't think it's hard to get in a conversation uh, about those things uh, as long as they're open to have a conversation. You know, um, it's not hard to move to just talk about the things that you love and the things that are important to you, and the church is a part of that, and the Word of God and Christ. And um, when I was living and serving in California, it took us seven years just to have one conversation with our next door neighbor. She was reclusive; she would not come out. Uh, but when we were, uh, when we had kids. And we were in the process of adopting and whatnot. She was seeing, and we got little babies here, and she wanted to get to know us a little more. And it opened up conversation. It was not hard to get into the gospel with her. And we shared the gospel many times. We had drug dealers who lived across the street from us. They were the nicest people on the block. They were the most friendly people. I shared the gospel with them all the time. They were, they were, it was not hard to talk about. They... They talked about what they were interested in. I talked about what I was interested in. And, and it was a lot, you know, what did you guys do on the weekend? Wow, you blew your mind, you know. And, yeah, I was, I was at church with these people. You know, you guys ever, you ever think about church? What's your background with that? And, you know, and the stories open up. And, and to the point where our neighbors all knew what we, what we did, and they start coming to us. I'm struggling. I need prayer. You're not a Christian, I know, but you'll pray for me. Yes, I will, and, and we'll talk. So I, I just don't find it to be as hard as you think it is, and most people are not going to be offended with you. Most people are not, you know, the type A atheist that is, is hardcore and is angry with you. Most people will have a common conversation with you about these things, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't assume that they wouldn't talk with us about that. They like to talk about what they're interested in. Go ahead. It's not going to be off-putting. Yeah, if you guys have questions, questions yet? Okay, I, I got more. Go ahead. So you're common middle manager attending your church. How does he start a gospel conversation? With how he's spending his time, books he's reading or she's reading, um, how you make decisions as a, as a family, what your interests are as a family. I think those are all going to segue. If it's really significant in your life and you're interested in, it segues into a conversation about, about the gospel. Why, if you're a businessman, why do you make certain, why do you do things the way you do um, that are unique, that might not be the way most businessmen do business? Uh, that segues into it. I, again, I think you're interested in the Lord and that's a significant part of your life. There's some some way you can talk about it. I've been reading this book. I found it really intriguing. Um, and here's what it's about. Have you ever thought about this? Uh, again, it's turning the question and asking for the response. Have you ever thought about these things? Um, nope. Well, maybe you should, you know. <laughs> so. Yeah, there's a guy in my church that I'll often go out to uh, lunch or coffee with, and every time he's, whether it's a server or a cashier or Somebody it's sitting at the table next to us, if they have any sort of tattoo or jewelry with a cross on it, he'll say, oh, tell me about your tattoo, or so tell me why you wear that, and he'll just start conversations that way. Um, I think another thing is current events, anytime there's a tragedy, so a school shooting, you know, a celebrity dies, something like that. Kobe Bryant died in a helicopter crash a couple years ago. Um, 
people are quick to talk about those current events if there's any sort of tragedy associated with it. You start talking about death and start talking about things that really matter. Everybody gets very serious. And they're either very comfortable or, or like wanting to talk about that, or you can tell what they're very scared to talk about that. They don't want to think about it. And that tells you where they are. So what I want to figure out is not just, like you said, I've got content I want to get off my chest. It's more so I want to figure out where this person is, ask some questions, and see where that conversation goes. So um, I think current events and sometimes personal things, asking them about their life, kids, wife, um, find out, you know, they've been divorced. You know, wh how long ago was that? Was that pretty difficult for you? You know, and sometimes pe you may, may or may not be able to get that personal with someone depends on the situation. But I think there's a lot of different ways. But what I've, what I've found is typically the reason we don't share the gospel is not because there's not an opportunity. Like, they're there. If we pray, Lord, give me an opportunity today to share Christ and help me to see the opening for that and to know how to take it. Um, you're praying according to God's will because <laughs> it's his will that we share the gospel. So those are prayers that he answers. So I think there's a lot of different ways. W one piece of advice I would give is hang out with somebody that's good at it and watch them do it. They probably don't know why they're good at it. They probably couldn't explain how they do it. They just, some people are more gifted. So steal their tricks, you know. Yeah, I think if you're just super interested in people and you ask them, so why do you do that? You, know, you seem to be really principled in how you raise your kids. Where do you get your principles from? I mean, that's a real easy gospel jump from there. Uh, a lot of times if somebody shares like some tragedy or something's going on in their family, you know, I'll pray for that. And then next conversation, hey, I've been praying for your mom. How's she doing? You know, I've also just been praying for you and just how you're doing spiritually and all this. How's that going? And so you just show concern and curiosity. A lot of people respond to that quite well. Yeah. Yeah, I don't see evangelism listed as a spiritual gift, right? It's a, it's a part of the Great Commission. That's the call of, of all Christians is to make disciples. Uh, how that looks is going to be different uh, for different people and, and how you might approach that. But um, sharing the gospel is not just for certain people who are gifted to do so. Um, maybe there is the category of the evangelist, but I understand that to be more the church planter, the person who's going to, it's a leadership position, going to a place where the gospel isn't, and, and beginning there. Um, okay, that's not for everybody, perhaps, but you sharing as a mom, discipling your children, that's, that's evangelism. I, re I remember when I came in view of a call, remember this, and I had an open Q&A, and it was like, they could ask questions until there were no more questions in the room and uh, was exhausting, but it was actually really thrilling too. And I, we had our, our, you know, ultra evangelists in the room who only saw evangelism as going out Saturday morning, getting in someone's face and talking. And they want to know who was the last person that you shared the gospel with. And I said, well, that would have been my kids last night before they went to bed. We were talking about the gospel. And they're like, oh, that doesn't count. And I'm like, oh, it does count. Matter of fact, if that's not where <laughs> I'm sharing the gospel, uh, how authentic is it? And, you know, I, I want to be careful with that too. Uh, but it was interesting to see how many of the children of those, you know, zealous evangelists uh, resented their parents and did not see the gospel at home and 
I don't know what all the reasons for that were, um, but how interesting that that wasn't viewed. So if I have children, I'm sharing the gospel, right? Everybody, if I have neighbors, I need to see as an opportunity to, to develop a relationship with them. So it's, it's not just for a few. I would read those passages and pray those. Yeah, I, I think that's good <laughs> and pray for those opportunities. I'm, you know, I have specific things that I'm praying for regularly, and there's, I have all my neighbors listed on a list, and I'm praying specifically for them. And most of the time I'm praying for the Lord to help me to be sensitive and aware. And I'm thinking there's, it's too easy for me to pull in the garage and shut the garage and go in. Uh, but if my neighbors are out, maybe I could just take a minute or two and go over and chat with them and see. Uh, but I'm, I'm just praying by name specifically for them and that the Lord would make me more aware, not just that he would cause them to come see me, you know, and enforce that, but that I would be more attuned to that. And I think we're praying for that as a church, that we would be bold. We would be, our Sunday evening service is more focused on prayer. So we pray evangelistically for government leaders. We pray for people in other nations. We're praying for other congregations and their evangelistic impact in their communities. We're praying for lost people. We, we break into smaller groups and we're saying, who in your life uh, doesn't know the Lord that is burdening your heart? Could we pray for them tonight? Um, I, I think prayer should be a significant part. If we really believe it's God that changes hearts, then we should be appealing to him to do that very thing. Uh, that's probably going to depend on the church and the community and what, you know, a, a number of different things. So I'm, I'm all for having different hooks in the water as long as those hooks don't think that they're on their own. So our, our, our mom's ministry that meets, you know, on Thursdays, that's not disconnected from us. That's very connected to us. So if I get the opportunity to speak to that group, which I do, you know, once or twice a year, I just tell them, we're praying for you. Our church is praying for you. This is a ministry of our congregation. These, these women in here are a part of this church. They love you and they care for you. So I want to just talk about those, those ministries as a part of who we are as a body, not as something that's just on their own. Just keep talking about this is a part of us so the foot is a part of us the the hand is a part of who we are and we're all in that we don't have to all do it at the same time but but it's a part of who we are so i think if you can just give that atmosphere whatever hooks in the water you put out there um, just make sure that we understand so even discipleship counseling you're not coming to counseling just to fix your problem we're, we're trying to show you how the whole body fits into where your need is. It, it's, it's a part of the, the whole church's ministry. So I don't if hopefully that's helpful. I think probably one of my favorites would be the first person who got saved when we first moved out there. And it was uh, reading the Bible together with someone. We, um, uh, at Countryside, the church where I was before, they sent us out. I had helped kind of edit and put together, other guys did the heavy lifting, but I'd kind of helped put together this seven-week evangelistic study through the Gospel of John. Um, so it's very simple, evangelistic, asking questions, what does the Bible say about eternal life, and going through some of the different statements of Jesus, getting people to sit down and read the Bible with, a, with an unsaved friend, something they could, hey, would you want to do a Bible study with me? Sure. So there was a college student who was part of our group 
who brought his roommate to an evangelistic Bible study, and we were on like week three or four, and we'd gotten, it's not like verse by verse through the whole book, it kind of took select passages. We'd gotten to John chapter six, and we got halfway through the study that night, and he just stopped, closed his Bible, and he said, um, I, I need this right now, I need to get saved. And we hadn't even, even used all of that terminology necessarily, and uh, he said, can we pray right now? And I was like, well, Brock, that's great. Let me, I just wanted to see where he was. Like, tell me what you're thinking and understanding and kind of explain some things for a few minutes and start asking some questions. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's great. But like, can we do it right now? And I, what I realized is, um, you know, when God is regenerating someone, their eyes are already open. And that impulse to repent and believe is there. It's like you can't stop them from, from being converted. So we did not talk Brock into it, but he was the first convert. And it happened simply by somebody in our church saying, hey, do you want to do a Bible study in the book of John with me and some of my friends from church? Because um, that was kind of our, some of our early outreach efforts was, hey, anybody you know that's interested, invite them, and we'll get a couple people together and talk about the Bible together. And so he was the first one to, uh, to get saved in our ministry. So I'll always remember that because it was just so encouraging for me because I realized we didn't really do any of this. That's God had already been working in his heart, and the moment was right, and we got to see the harvest. So... I think one thing I've kind of noticed, back when I became a Christian and really kind of grew, I was skeptical of the, the seeker-sensitive church for many reasons, where the idea was you invite people to church and then you kind of let the pastor do the work. And, and <clears throat> you know, I thought they were all cowards, right? The whole share the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. I'm like, that's just weak, compromise, Assisi never said that. What are you talking about? And and when I think about, I mean, there's different models of evangelism. I was talking to a friend of mine, and he talks about how there's the go and tell and the come and see. And I think both of them are vital, but when I look back at our church, often it's been um, the first point of contact we've had with a lot of these people who became Christians is they showed up at our church. And there's some story when somebody who never goes to church shows up at church that I think if you... Um, really seize upon that when it does come up, there's a lot of great opportunities. W one book we went through uh, by Tom Rayner is called Becoming a Welcoming Church. You ever read that? And it's just very common sense stuff. Like if you talk about the Xenos ministry, which we have and we shouldn't, what does that mean? Oh, Doxa ministry is going to mean, you know, meet here. And oh, that's high school ministry. And so a lot of times it talks about like coded language or uh, a lot of times uh, the people at church just don't really have an awareness that a new person is there and they don't quite know what to do. And so I think a lot of it is when you have an unbeliever show up, I mean, there's just a story that's waiting to be told and engaging them and just figuring out what brought you here. That Those are just some of the golden opportunities that we have. And, and I think, you know what, it's, it's not wrong to invite people to church. Um, I was thinking one thing, I know I'm monologuing here, but when you brought up why church discipline is something that helps with evangelism, this is why I think that's the case. One, it honors God, but number two, it purifies the church. And one of the number one objections against going to church is it's full of hypocrites. And what church discipline does is it drives the hypocrites out of the church. And what's left is a real beautiful gospel-centered community where people really love each other and take care of each other and 
um, you know, going back to how I became a Christian, I, I got introduced to Christ through this Christian community of college students that was amazing and different, where they really loved and cared for one another. And so I think one of the great attractions of our churches is the people and the relationships and people think I'm on the outside looking in what's what's going on right you add anything to that because you, you talked about just the movement away from a, the attractional ministry well when we talk about the attractional ministry we're talking about something where you're trying to make man the center point right and the attraction is purely on on what will attract you based on you but we're all for people coming to see true worship and zealous, engaged uh, interest in God and connection with God. <coughs> we want people to see that. Um, I think the attractional model that we don't want is the more man-centered, <coughs> where we're just really, you're at the center of this. We're going to cater to you. Uh, but we would love for you to see but, uh, but I'm, I'm not disillusioned, too. I understand non-Christians would not walk in and say, yeah, this is, I love this. This is incredible. This is what I've been missing all my life. I think they're going to walk in and say, what? And I, that's okay. There should be some of that and quizzical. That's why I think if our members can come alongside those folks and engage them on, okay, what did you see? What was confusing? What, what, what did you find irrelevant to you? That's a great conversation to have. So not, not against that at all, you know. And like I said, Christmas Eve, people just come. They, they almost feel like it's an ob obligation to come because it's Christmas Eve. And, and uh, that needs to be a real clear presentation of who God is. And have you guys seen any, like, this is kind of the last question, but have you seen a certain group of people that seem to be more receptive to the gospel than others. See what I'm saying? Like, there just seems like these people seem to be drawn more than others. JD? I think two different types of people. Um, one is people in crisis. So we had some neighbors we'd reached out to for a number of years. They were our local drug dealers. Um, and had invited to, you know, the church picnic and had visited with them. And there was a really nice, but please, like, keep a safe distance kind of a vibe. Until one day he pulled up on my curb. I was in the front yard. And he goes, bro, what time's your church start on Sunday? It's <laughs> his first words. It's like, well, David, what's going on? And he goes, everything. And he was right. I mean, life w had exploded. Crisis, marriage counseling, gospel, transformation, like awesome, awesome story. Um, so I think people in crisis, we should always be looking for that open. And that's where you getting to know people, being open with your faith, even if they are not interested, they might be later. So I think God providentially positions us in situations that may be awkward at one point and later turns out to be just a beautiful plan of God. But the other thing I've seen recently, and this is, I think, what we talked about, it's funny because in years past, I think you guys probably know this, the hardest people to evangelize are the people who think they're already saved because they grew up going to church and they're semi-religious, but they really don't know Christ. And you got to get them lost before you can get them saved, and it's just hard to break into that. But what, we, what we've experienced in our church over the last number of years is some of those semi-religious people 
have become so disillusioned with the world, so disillusioned with, with dead churches because they've seen compromise, they've seen change, and it's probably even rooted in their political views and social things and other stuff, but they're looking for something real. And, and so those kind of churched um, um, Christian culture type, you know, cultural Christians are now coming, they're hungry for something more. And they're the ones that we're seeing come to church and, and God's doing something in, in their lives. And they're open and teachable in ways that they never were before. We just needed, you know, some international crises to shake things up a little bit. And, and who would have thought that one of the hardest groups to reach would now become this really fruitful opportunity for ministry? So we're seeing some of the people from these seeker-sensitive churches or people that grew up in mainline churches and don't really go, but they consider themselves Christians. They're seeing that the world is full of lies, they're realizing that they've been sell, sold a bill of goods and a lot of different things, and they're now questioning everything, and they want substance, and they want truth, and they're coming to church. I think there was something that Mike Summers and I were, were talking about in the first break. COVID, I think, made a lot of people wonder the church was shut down. So when it started to open back up again, why should I go to that? What, what, how relevant is that? I just three months went without going to church. How did I get along? And some people got along actually wonderfully without the church, right? And they're not coming back. So the mainline church that's next door to us had far more people coming than we did before COVID. Not now. They did not bounce back. In fact, I've got a neighbor behind me who goes to that church, and he, he came to me recently. He said, hey, can, can we start selling you parking lot space? Because I see you're out of it, and we've got lots of it. And, and I said, why do you think that is? And he says, I can't figure it out, which was another conversation for us to, to, to begin. But I, I would just encourage you guys, in the post-COVID world, that seeing how irrelevant some if you would just be biblically rich and vibrant, you will distinguish yourself. Because uh, if you are full of the Spirit, full of the Word, and the Word is just pulsating through the way you live and the, the lives of your people, and you're growing in that, you're watching over one another, church discipline is real, and they're seeing a vibrant culture, that is going to stand out in unique ways that, the attractional model that's very man-centered is just not going to stand out. It's going to be very unique. And, and I think that's going to, that is going to be a bright light for us. And so I would just encourage you, even if you don't think it's being fruitful right now, keep pressing in on that. Be faithful to the Lord. Don't quit what you're doing. I mean, you, we can learn how to preach better, yes, and we can learn how to be more welcoming, and we... We need to fellowship harder than we do. We need to do all those things, not because it'll bring more people in, just so that it makes the light brighter and it makes us more unique. So I, I, I think there's something on the horizon for us, you know, in being biblically faithful. Oh, J.D., Brett, thanks for answering all the questions, and it was really rich and, and wonderful. So I know some of you won't be at Iron Man tomorrow. We'll miss you, but for the rest of us, we said 8 o'clock, and we will be sensitive to your sleeping schedules and all that stuff. So let me go ahead and pray. And, oh, 
We have a blue water bottle in the back. Anybody missing a blue water bottle? Okay. We found the taker. All right. Well, Father, I do thank you for uh, J.D. and Brett and just all the wisdom that they imparted. And I pray that this was just a helpful uh, pre-conference for everyone, uh, that we'll all take the best of the ideas that we've heard and and that you might use um, what we've learned and what we've thought about and even what we process to really equip our churches to be bright lights in a world that um, that's full of darkness. I pray that we will um, just be eager to go and reap the harvest uh, that is waiting for us. And we do pray for souls. We pray for converts. Lord, you know that's our heart desire. We know that hell is a real place. We know that people are going there. We know that Christ sent his son to die on the cross. And Lord, that we have the best news um, that we can give everyone. And so, Father, I, I pray that in the coming year that uh, we'll be faithful evangelists that you'll give us good fruit, and perhaps next year when we get together, we'll talk about what you did uh, in these past, uh, in this next year. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.